Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. On Monday, the Brexit talks finally begin as the EU and the UK sit down to negotiate. But what actually is going to happen? Joining me on the line from Brussels is our Bureau Chief, Alex Barker, and here in the studio, James Blitz, editor of our daily Brexit briefing. So, Alex, the two sides finally do get to talk almost exactly a year after Britain voted to leave. How rapidly or otherwise do you expect them to make progress? I think it's just one day of negotiations this week. It, it, as they get into this process, they'll probably spend a week talking and trying to make, you know, advance in some areas and set their agenda for the next kind of round of negotiations. This time, it's going to be kind of setting the stage for what's to come. You'll see the European Commission explain their kind of position papers on what citizen rights they want protected, financial settlement, uh, there'll be questions presumably. I think they'd hope that the UK would outline what it hopes to do on citizen rights at least and then there'll be pragmatic discussions about you know which dates, who's turning up, which are more difficult than you'd imagine. The really important thing about Monday I think if you step back is that we're not going to see, it doesn't look like at this point, a big clash on sequencing. You don't see the UK coming and saying, we will not, in any circumstances, discuss money until we've got further along in the process. And a bit of an admission, I don't know how long that will last, but it's a bit of an admission that they're willing to go along with the the, the Commission's kind of uh, schedule and blueprint for the, the first phase of these negotiations. And James, the British side enter these talks, I think it's fair to say, in some state of disarray. Theresa May had hoped that she would have a strong mandate coming out of the elections. She's got the opposite. And even this dreadful fire in London, it sort of feels like the Brits are, are in a weakened state. Yes, that's certainly the case. I think there are two things which have happened as a result of the serious reverse that Mrs May had at the election. The first is that the broad direction in which the British want to go in the Brexit talks is now much more of an open issue within the UK government. It looks as though Mrs May is sticking by the Lancaster House speech, in other words, what you might call the hard Brexit. In other words, the UK will end membership of the single market, it will leave the customs union, it will leave the jurisdiction of the ECJ. And those things were set out in the letter to the EU as well, weren't yes, they? Yes, they were. She's firm on that, and from the initial signs are she's sticking to that. She doesn't want to adjust. But within the UK cabinet and within the Conservative Party, there is more of a debate happening about whether to shift to a softer Brexit and a accommodation that puts the economy first. That's certainly something that Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, wants to do. Whether he'll articulate it so strongly, I'm not sure. Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, who won quite a number of seats at the election, also wants to 
to go in that direction. And you've heard other voices like David Cameron, John Major, saying we need to shift to that ground. So that's the first thing that's created some disarray in the British position. And the second is that Mrs May, with the accommodation she has with Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, still only has a very small majority of around six or seven in the 650-seat House of Commons. That's a very small majority to push through the enormous raft of domestic legislation, 10 or 15 bills that have got to go through in this parliament as part of the Brexit process. So a lot of weakness, a lot of uncertainty, and that clearly will be making itself felt in this opening stage of the Brexit talks. So what's the mood in in Brussels, Alex? I mean, are people relaxed about this uh, confusion on the British side? Are they exasperated? It's been quite a mixed set of emotions. I mean, they're exasperated, they're frustrated not to be getting on with this process at an earlier stage. They're unsure about what this will mean for their own kind of tactics in this first phase of the negotiation. Does she have less room for manoeuvre? What does that mean in terms of how hard they can push, what they can bank as promises? So there's there's partly a rethink going on, and at a higher political level, you see Emmanuel Macron, Wolfgang Schäuble, basically indicating that you know the doors are always open to the Brits if if they change their mind. But you've not seen a big engagement on the EU side about trying to influence what Britain will be seeking in terms of its future relationship, what the EU might see as the ideal kind of distance that they want Brexit Britain to be at. But that might come at a later stage. At this point, they're thinking primarily about the withdrawal terms and and hoping that they can make some relatively rapid progress on that so they can start discussing the trade end of things towards the end of the year, maybe. And James, do you think it's likely that they can make relatively rapid progress on these early issues, citizens' rights and money? Well, yes, those are the two issues that they have to look at in the first phase. On citizens' rights, the British seem to be making some accommodations in terms of the deadline by which those acquired rights would expire. But I think a key issue still from the Downing Street end seems to be who is going to have the overall jurisdiction of those rights. So in other words, if you are an EU national who has long-term right to remain in the UK as, as a result of a new arrangement and you want to complain, say, to the British Home Office or the British government about how you're being treated... The British are saying the final jurisdiction has to be with the UK Supreme Court. The Europeans are insisting it's got to be with the ECJ. That is a very difficult dividing line, and it's not clear to me that that is anywhere near being reconciled. As far as the money is concerned, that's a really, really difficult area, and a lot of work can be done on that. Where I think the uncertainty is for the British and in some ways they need one of the reasons i think that they're not raising this this question of sequencing and their earlier demand to have parallel talks is actually because of the uncertainty in the uk they don't really know where they want to go on the fta the customs union they need to reconcile that in the uk so actually there's quite a good window between now at least and the german election in october to look at the technical issues sort of heritage issues if you like and then move on to the FTA later. But at the moment, the British need time to work out what they really think about those latter issues. So oddly, as as you say, it now almost suits the British to accept what they before regarded as an imposition, this, this suggestion that we won't talk about trade talks until you settle the money because the British suddenly, their position on trade talks is up in the air. I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I think the British government needs to go now through a period of four or five months where it, it sees whether it is going to stabilise its situation 
as a result of the election or, or whether we're going to move towards another difficult period with possibly a new election. I mean, Mrs May has to win the Queen's speech vote in the House of Commons, which she should win, but it, it, it's tight under these circumstances, has to set out her legislative programme. And then we have to see whether the Conservative Party is definitely settling down behind having her as leader for a while. But there are people who say, given actually at the moment her, her personal popularity ratings are absolutely terrible, the accommodation with the DUP is a really toxic one for many voters because the DUP raises a lot of questions about the Northern Ireland process and so on. I mean, People are wondering whether that will stick. So I think they do need to bed down for a bit. And once they've bedded down, and once they've reconciled this question of the direction of the relationship with the EU, the long-term relationship with the EU, the customs union, single market, then I think they might be in a better position to get into the talks. Yeah. I mean, Alex, you've, if I may say so, kind of led the field on this money story, one of the first people to point out how much the EU was going to ask for. And I know we've spoken in the past about that being the breaking point of the negotiations. Do you think, though, that this possibility, that the way out of it might simply be to agree on the modalities of the discussion and leave the total sum until the end of the negotiations when it can be kind of haggled over? It depends what you mean by modalities. There are 27 countries there sitting with their spreadsheets thinking, is this going to cost me money in the EU budget round or uh, am I going to have to chip in more or am I going to lose out on structural funds and so the, when you say modalities the, the promises they want from the UK uh, will in their eyes be bankable and with a figure and the fundamental problem about the money negotiation at this point is that they're looking for pledges in this first round to cover the commitments in that EU budget and the easiest way to answer it is through a transition but they're not discussing the transition until the second phase of this negotiation. And so how they square this is going to be pretty hard. And it's true, they're saying we're not having numbers, it's about methodologies, but they're basically asking the Brits to sign up to an itemised list of liabilities and to a share that they're obliged to pay ultimately. And that looks pretty like a number to me. So it's going to be very hard. Yeah, and that sounds politically toxic in Britain, doesn't it, James? Yes, it would be. I mean, there's no question that if the major fear in the UK government has always been that if you have a situation where it looks like we've settled on a, a figure and the actual amount that we've got to pay, but we still don't know what the long-term relationship is, it looks like we're giving something away and we're not getting anything in return. And obviously that figure is, you know, that remains a toxic and difficult issue because, of course... The argument that was made in the referendum campaign was actually we wouldn't actually be ending up paying anything. There'd actually be money coming back to the UK as a result. So it's very difficult to sell. So what are the odds, given the difficulties of the issues, the sheer technical difficulties of, of just doing the, these negotiations, the political disarray in Britain and the well-known difficulty of getting the EU27 to agree and stick to a common position, that actually we don't get a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit, we just get a no-deal Brexit and Britain just leaves the EU after two years. Alex, well, how would you uh, rate that possibility? I mean, any predictions at this point are it's clearly a, a big risk. I personally think to leave with no deal at all, you probably need a positive decision on that from the House of Commons. I think the likelihood of leaving but in a kind of situation where we're continuing an EEA-style relationship because the UK can't really decide what it wants next uh, might be more probable than that. 
Would the EU necessarily accept that, though? If Britain leaves, agrees to sign up to the acquis, uh, the four freedoms, pays budget contributions and accepts the ECJ, uh, they'd be quite happy for them to give up their vote. Right. And, but, and James, do you think that's doable in Britain? I think it's very difficult to know at the moment. I think one thing that's happening is that public opinion is beginning to shift. That is an important thing that we haven't discussed. If you look at the latest YouGov poll that just came out this week, it shows that a majority of people still think we should leave the EU. There's, there's still a belief that the referendum decision was something that cannot be gone against now. But I think public opinion has shifted much more towards some kind of soft Brexit. I think what's happened is that back in January, when Mrs May made the Lancaster House speech, she was very popular. It had a lot of, there was a lot of confidence in the country. Her polling was high. And so the country was behind that. But the country has clearly gone against Mrs May. It's clearly given up on her, even if the Conservative Party are still sticking with her for the time being. But because it's gone against her, it's also suddenly got a lot of doubt, I think, about that hard Brexit prospectus that she put out. And it's shifting towards something which is more of an accommodation. So I think things have certainly shifted towards something which is more positive for the economy. The other thing we haven't mentioned as well, which I think is going to change the public mood, which again is the most important thing in some ways, is this has been a week for pretty poor economic data in the UK. We've seen a significant rise in inflation, up to 2.9%, a sharp fall in retail sales. Real wage growth is very low indeed. The Bank of England came as close as it has for some years to raising interest rates in its, its latest report. So I think that is also going to change the mood towards something which is at the softer end of accommodations with the EU. And of course, if the mood's shifting now, just briefly, it can shift again. So it's not inconceivable that, as Macron and Schäuble say, well, Britain might end up staying. I don't think it is inconceivable. I think if this political stalemate continues, if we go to another election, if perhaps that election turned out again to be inconclusive with another hung parliament, if we see the economic data continuing on this downward trend, and, of course, the other factor is, as you said earlier, Macron and Merkel and Europe generally looking strong, especially after last weekend's National Assembly results... I think in the end, the question about whether the referendum was conducted properly, legitimately, with the right information given to the public, might become more of the debate. But we're not there yet. Yes. And indeed, Alex, just to finish off, give us a sense of how things look more generally on the Brussels side. I mean, is Brexit's kind of the number one issue in, in Britain is it the number one issue in Brussels or is it just something that they want to make sure doesn't eat up their entire agenda and they've got other things they want to talk about? That's exactly right. I mean, I've not felt the kind of sense of confidence that I see today in Brussels for, for years. They have a bit more vim. There's energy in terms of looking towards how they're going to move forward as 27. And of course, there are huge issues and divisions on various all sorts of subjects. Um, but uh, they are very keen to show that they can uh, move on and that Brexit isn't going to kind of uh, drag them into some maelstrom. They have a clear idea of how they want to move ahead. And that sense of impatience with the UK is growing and you can hear the kind of well if you know 
if they can't decide, we'll just cut them loose. Uh, you hear that a bit more these days. And I mean, if, if I can just make one final point, it's pretty amazing that we're coming to the first round of negotiations on Monday in a kind of external British negotiation. And the biggest factors that we see are all internal to the UK, an internal negotiation within the UK. And it's clearly all those points that James were making about, you know, can this parliament actually deliver the legislation it needs to? Does the prime minister have the authority to enter into a deal? These are going to be by far the most important in the months to come, even though, you know, as we said, this divorce and, and the breakup is extraordinarily complicated. Yes, and, and so in, it's odd, isn't it, Alex, that it's almost as the British feel that the most important negotiation is the one we're having with ourselves, but we have to remember that 27 other countries have a say. But 27, and, and, and all, the, all the third countries were going to be cutting off as, uh, as well. I mean, I mean, and indeed the European Parliament and so indeed, on and so on indeed. and so on. We'll have to leave it there for now. So thank you very much indeed to Alex Barker in Brussels, to James Blitz here in London. I'm sure, I fear that we will be returning to this issue before too long, but that's it for now. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.